invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, bringing to a close our series uh, on Christmas in Matthew's Gospel, The King of Kings, Salvation Brings. Uh, we'll, we'll get a little extra tonight, though, in our candlelight service. Uh, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, the story of the wise men visiting the infant Jesus. It's, it's so familiar to us now that we, we don't realize how surprising that it was then that, that people whom nobody expected to be looking for Israel's Messiah would travel from faraway lands uh, to find and worship this new king. While at the same time, the, the political and religious authorities of Judah, who knew the prophecies, who, who knew the, to expect this Messiah, were just down the road from Bethlehem, those leaders rejected or ignored the infant Christ. But, but this too was in the prophecies. The Messiah would be rejected by some, yet he would receive the worship that he is due from among all peoples of the earth. And that movement continues to grow and spread even in our world today. Now, we often end our Christmas stories right here. I mean, we, we got the baby Jesus and we got everybody surrounding him, you know, Mary, Joseph, angels, shepherds, wise men, and, and all the animals that go with each. I mean, shepherds, well, we got to throw in a sheep or two, right? Uh, wise men, they, they had to ride on something. We'll put in a camel. Uh, what about, what about Mary and Joseph? They have a donkey with them, and somebody was eating out of that manger. We'll put in an ox, too, all right? So we got everybody there. Our nativity scene is complete, right? Well, there's more. And I have to warn you, this part of the story is a little dark. It, it doesn't fit nicely into a happy holiday, uh, 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 Christmas carol with, you know, jingle bells going in the background. It, it doesn't, it's not a scene that you're going to see on a Christmas card, but it is here in Scripture, and so it's a story that we have to reckon with. You may have picked up that sense of foreboding last week in reaction to the wise men. Verse 3, Herod the king was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And then the ominous ending uh, of last week's passage, verse 12, we'll start with that verse. I'll read verse 12, and then we'll go on into our passage, 13 through 23, the rest of the chapter. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, the chapter ends with more dreams, more angels, prophecies fulfilled, and, you know, in terms of the... the story arc, it gets Jesus from his birthplace to the town where he, he will grow up. And not without drama, life-threatening danger, uh, horrible tragedy, and here's how all this fits into the bigger story. Here's our theme for today. You'll find this on the outline on the back of the worship folder on the screen here. In the providence of God, the promised King and Savior was saved for us. In the providence of God, the promised King and Savior was saved for us. We're going to take this in three parts that correspond to the three prophecies in this passage. So here's part one. And each of these have a, has a geographical element as well, a location. So part one, escape to Egypt. Jesus becomes a refugee, but this only further proves him to be God's son. That heartwarming scene that we looked at last week of wise men coming and bowing before the, the young Christ and offering royal gifts, that, that whole beautiful scene, it's over. And this little family didn't get to enjoy that very long. That night, a dream warns the wise men to avoid Herod. Uh, is it the next night or maybe it's even later the same night? We, we don't quite know. Uh, Joseph gets a dream, a warning, and it's even more specific. Verse 13, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, if you're here with us last week, I told you a little bit more about Herod. Herod the Great, Herod here, the king, he was famous for killing political opponents, uh, political rivals, even if they were his relatives. It would be nothing to him to kill one small child from a poor out-of-town couple. Surely, uh, the wise men had told Joseph and Mary about meeting Herod, about how eager Herod was to come and see the baby for himself. And you can be sure that the angel has Joseph's attention when he says, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. The, the, the Greek verb translated here as flee is the same word from which we get words in our language, uh, words like fugitive or refugee. It, it describes people who are fleeing famine or war or persecution, and that's what happens. Joseph, Mary, Jesus would be running for their lives. They must leave their homeland to seek refuge in Egypt. Trip is about 75 miles or so from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border. And it was uh, like Judea, another Roman province, uh, though outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And we know there, from history that there was a significant uh, Jewish community living in Egypt uh, at this time. Uh, Matthew very briefly describes here the immediate, careful obedience of Joseph. The angel said, in verse 13, rise, take, flee, remain. Joseph, in verse 14 and 15, he rose, he took, he departed, and remained in Egypt. But take a moment to just 
try to absorb a little bit of what it had to be like. I mean, you can, how would it feel to, to go from, uh, in one moment, a, a, having a royal celebration for your child and then find out that the most powerful person in the country wants him dead? You can imagine the back and forth between Mary and Joseph. Go to Egypt? Yes. What can we take? Only what we can carry. Well, can we tell anyone where we're going? No, we have to disappear. When are we coming back? I don't know. But there's so much to do. No, we have to leave now. Can you imagine the disorientation, the fear, the, 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 the chaos of mind? Imagine the physical and emotional toll in that moment and, and appreciate the, the courage and the faith and the obedience but none of that is the focus for Matthew. We already knew that Matthew didn't tell us everything about uh, what happened at Jesus' birth. You know, Luke tells us about the angel visiting Mary. Luke tells us about the angels coming to the shepherds on the Bethlehem uh, countryside. And it, Luke tells us those things. Matthew doesn't. Now, it's, I think it's a little clearer what Matthew is doing. By the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we realize, oh, okay, he is selecting scenes that fulfill prophecy. Have you noticed that? All, all through chapters 1 and 2, he keeps quoting, that this, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, again and again and again. So we easily remember the, the two prophecies prior to this passage. So verse 123, or chapter 1, verse 23, he would be born of a virgin. Or 2, 6, he would be born in Bethlehem. Clear, easy to understand. These last few prophecies are less familiar and more puzzling. So you got verse uh, 15 here, the, the end of verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And if your Bible has a footnote there, you can see this comes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now you go back to Hosea 11, you look it up, and it's not a prediction of the coming Messiah. It describes the nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. The whole verse says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea, what Hosea said was not a prediction of the Messiah so much as he's describing what would become a parallel experience. Now, when we think of Israel, the history of Israel being in Egypt, we usually first think of their slavery, the time that they were slaves. But remember, the, the, the patriarch, uh, Jacob and his sons and their children, they first went to Egypt back in the book of Genesis to escape a famine. They were refugees of a sort. They went there to save their lives, and God provided for them in Egypt by sending uh, Joseph there ahead of them. And in a parallel experience, Jesus would go to Egypt to save his life. God provides for and protects his son by way of Egypt. Now, later in Exodus, of course, we know that, that uh, Egypt and its king, Pharaoh, turned against God's people. And when God called Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt, he said, this is Exodus 4, 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
And of course, that happens at the end of the ten plagues. Israel was oppressed, but it was not abandoned, not forsaken in Egypt. The nation was like a son to God, and he would come and rescue them. And now Jesus is walking that same path. But if you didn't know any better, if you didn't make that connection, you didn't draw that conclusion, oh, this is, no, this is the providence of God. If you didn't know that, you'd think, well, huh, I guess, I guess the wise men got it wrong. I mean, he's no king. He's just another homeless, uh, vagrant, wandering, uh, cast off from the, the, all the political uh, machinations going on in the world, and he's just a, a, somebody wandering the earth, nowhere to go. Or even today, history books say that Jesus didn't become a conqueror. He, he was no Messiah. He was just some obscure rabbi with a small following. No big deal. Matthew says, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. Even as, even as Jesus becomes a refugee, he proves himself to be Messiah. He, he shows himself to be the Son of God. Another Son of God, like Israel as a whole, the Son of God. Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1 1 because he is the ultimate Son. He was not forsaken. He would be brought back from Egypt out of the faithfulness and providence of God. Think of it this way. God did not leave Israel in Egypt because he had promises yet to keep. God did not leave Jesus in Egypt because he has promises yet to keep. There's more to say about God's plan, but we have to deal with this next part. Even as Jesus escapes to Egypt, we are horrified to see, this is part two, the massacre at Bethlehem. Jesus was spared this slaughter so that he could be offered as our Savior. So remember back in verse 8, Herod had told the wise men, Hey, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But when the wise men do not return with their uh, scouting report, then we see Herod's truly evil intentions toward the newborn king. Now, you have to understand, Bethlehem was only five miles or so from Jerusalem. I mean, closer than Mount Morris to, to Oregon. Uh, of course, they're not traveling as fast as we do. But, but we, the, these wise men probably found Jesus on the same night that Herod sent them. I mean, this could all have been very compressed. They, it could have been that they arrive in Jerusalem on some particular day. Uh, they meet with Herod. They travel to Bethlehem at night. Remember, they're following the star. Do they come to Jesus at night? And even later that same night, I mean, this could all be within 24 hours. They meet with Herod. They get a dream, and they're, they're going away the other way. It could have been possibly Joseph's dream is in the same night as well, and they leave again, as it says, by night. But that, that's... We don't quite know if this is all happening in one 24-hour period or over a couple of nights, a couple of days. Joseph, either, either way, we don't know how long Herod waited for the wise men to return. He wasn't, he wasn't going to give them a couple of weeks, understand. Maybe he waited a, uh, the first day he expected them to come back. Uh, maybe, okay, well, maybe, they, maybe one more day. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus didn't leave for Egypt any too soon. And we come to the part of the story where, for once, we're thankful that Matthew doesn't go into a lot of detail because we could hardly bear it. To, to, to know what it was like, verse 
16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in, that, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The time, thinking of, when did you see the star? How, how old must this baby be by now? We have plenty of ancient historical records besides the Bible that tell us that Herod was ruthless, besides what I've already told you. I mean, there was a time when there were a, a group of 10 men who wanted to assassinate him, and he had them executed and all their families. He, he, he had said, he, he gave the order that when he died, when, when, when I die, Herod said, um, I want you to kill these big numbers of the Jewish nobility so that the mourning in Jerusalem will be genuine. So the people will really will be sad when I die. Now that didn't ha- thankfully that wasn't carried out. But you can you can just tell what kind of you know nice guy he is. Sadly, this massacre in Bethlehem was something Herod barely felt, but it had to be shattering for these families. At this time, Bethlehem was just a small village, just like the prophet Micah had said. It's estimated the slaughter would involved would have involved maybe 12 to 20 young boys. So many families, mothers, fathers, siblings, grandparents, utterly broken, unspeakable grief, and, and just out of nowhere. No, no way to expect it that Herod would have done something like that in terms of for, for them in Bethlehem. They, they're not getting involved in that messy stuff in Jerusalem. It's not hard to see then why these words from the prophet Jeremiah came to mind as Matthew reflected on this. So again, verses 17 and 18, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Certainly, that was the sound going up all over Bethlehem that night. Weeping, loud lamentation. People just uh, inconsolable. Now, we can say, okay, I understand why those words would come from the prophet Jeremiah centuries earlier would come to mind to Matthew, weeping for children who are no more. But in what sense was this prophecy fulfilled? And further, how, how does this add to Matthew's presentation that Jesus is the Messiah? And, and what, do, what do we do with the fact that the Heavenly Father saved Christ, the Son, through those dreams, the angels that directed the wise men and Joseph, while so many other sons died, so many other families grieved? The Messiah lives, but for some 20 homes, no tidings of comfort and joy, no peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Why did God protect Jesus but let Herod, let Herod massacre the rest? That's big stuff. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't just kind of talk rather glibly like, oh, well, yeah, there's, there's explanations for all this. Well, just let's start by just working our way through what we have here. Matthew is quoting uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 15, in this quotation. It was written centuries earlier, and 
in a different chapter of Jeremiah, the prophet, that prophet tells us that Ramah was the place where the Babylonian general gathered Jewish captives together before marching them off into exile. And now here's where you really have to pay attention because it can be confusing. So Ramah is also near the place where, centuries before Jeremiah, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, and a matriarch of the people of Israel, she died while giving birth to their son, Benjamin. And Genesis 35, verse 19 says, So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So she was buried, again, near Ramah, but it's described as on the way to Bethlehem. Just like, you know, you're driving down the highway, you see an exit sign. It's, there's a, a name of a town on that exit sign, but that town isn't right there. It's, this is the way to that town, but, but it's identified with that, that name, that place. So, see if you can follow this, right? Rachel is a quintessential mother, a matriarch, a quintessential mother of Israel. She lies buried near Ramah, which was significant for Jeremiah. He imagined Rachel weeping, this mother reaping from her grave for her children taken into exile. But in Matthew's day, the link to Bethlehem matters even more. And again, he imagines Rachel weeping for her children, her descendants. And this time, Matthew believes these words from Jeremiah to be fulfilled. Truer than ever, but, but not because necessarily, but because this is, uh, because this is the greater tragedy I think it's fulfilled in a different sense, in a sense because it connects to Jesus in this way. Let's keep going. If you, if you keep reading in Jeremiah, right after the verse that's quoted here in Matthew 2, the prophecy turns from mourning, grieving, to hope. Jeremiah 31.15 is in our text in Matthew 2. Jeremiah 31.16 and 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now you can say, well, yeah, fine. The, the children that went into exile would come back, but not these kids in Bethlehem. They're not coming back. It's a greater tragedy, yes, but, but that's not what fulfills this path, that's not the fulfillment Matthew has in mind. Later in Jeremiah 31, God promises a new covenant, a new beginning to the relationship between God and his people. On the other side of exile, when God forgives the sins of his people and changes their hearts to know him and to follow his ways, it was on the night before Jesus' crucifixion uh, that he told his disciples that this new covenant would come into effect through his death. Jesus would die to bring the forgiveness and the spiritual transformation that God had promised, that was in God's plan for centuries. That's why Jesus had to be spared from the massacre at Bethlehem, not so that he could go on with his life, yeah, too bad for those other kids, no, but so that one day he could die. Not just as a, a, a mere victim of some uh, bloodthirsty tyrant, though that's to many people what it looked like when he did die, Not that, but, but so that he could die to redeem his people, to bring about the greater rescue. 
And, and if you want to push back here, you can, you can still say like, well, okay, that sounds good. He had to live so that he could do something better later on. But in the long run, you can say, well, man, in the long run, it was all for the best. But those families in Bethlehem still suffered a horrible evil. Why didn't God stop that? Why didn't he save them too? We could just as easily ask, why, why didn't God stop the SUV that, that plowed into the crowds in Waukesha, Wisconsin a few weeks ago? Why, why didn't God stop that student at Oxford High School in Michigan who shot and killed fellow students? Why didn't God stop that? I, I would not be so presumptuous, so foolish as to try to explain. Uh, and, and, and God doesn't need me to defend him on those points. But if we can think about it this way, if evil... If God is is if God is just, is good and goodness, if He is holy, and if evil is fundamentally anti-God, and suffering inevitably results in a world that is anti-God, not not again that every single person suffers because of their sin, but but we live in an environment, in a context, in a in a in a world that is set against God and, the, and suffering inevitably results. And so in the providence of God, in, in the, his wisdom and sovereignty that I cannot know, none of us can plumb the depths of, God is letting the world have its way and suffer the consequences even as he is also at work to bring the one who would save them. It's just, it's just like in the days of, of the Exodus, when many babies in Israel died at the hands of, of ruthless Pharaoh, and yet one was spared. Moses was spared to be the leader, the savior, the redeemer. And just as, well, no, that's where the similarity ends with Jesus, because By the end of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we'll see a greater Moses. God would not spare his own son, but give him up for us all. Why would God let those children be killed? I don't know, but but it seems clear from our world, from human history, that, that God has chosen to say, evil will have its day. Why would God let his son be crucified? because grace and mercy will have its day. Don't, don't let, if I can appeal to you, don't let the suffering of this world, the, the evil that seems so powerful and so prevalent, don't let the suffering of this world turn you from God, turn you away from God. Let the evil and suffering of this world turn you to God, to the one who suffered the the, the pain and the shame of the evil of this world in order to make you and I right with God and one day to set this whole world right again. That's the plan. That's the purpose of God. That's the providence of God. Now, you get through that, and after that, the, the last part of the passage seems kind of, well, anticlimactic. It's not, it's not a thrilling conclusion or a cliffhanger ending, uh, but that's kind of the point. It's been a little while since I read that earlier, so let me just get this fresh in our ears again. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, rise. 
Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called, he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. This is part three, return to Nazareth. Jesus waits unseen as threats continue until he is revealed to all as king. Now, we don't know how much time passes when Jesus was in Egypt, but Herod dies and you know, Joseph doesn't have to catch it on the news. I mean, the angel comes, as promised, to send him and his little family back to Israel. Now, at this point, as a preacher, I, I want to say something like, Ha! Herod dies. That, that baby killer, he could not hold on to his throne forever. The king is dead. Long live the king, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that here. But unfortunately, the passage goes on. And there's another threat. Oh, come on. We, we know from other ancient sources that when Herod died, his realm was divided into three parts, given to three of Herod's sons. Of course, again, this is under the uh, higher authority of Rome, the Roman Empire. So Archelaus, one of his sons, ruled Judea and Samaria and was great, ruthless, just like his father. Um, he was not only evil, he was also inept. Uh, he's just a bad ruler and was later kicked out by Rome, which is why by the time Jesus is an adult, there's no king of Judea. You've got a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. Verse 22, Joseph was afraid to go where Archelaus ruled. Apparently that was not a foolish or a faithless kind of fear. There's one more dream that warns him to go elsewhere. Joseph ends up returning to what Luke tells us was his former home, Nazareth. And even this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, here's where this section is, gets hard to follow. You can't find a, a, a footnote here uh, to, to link back to an Old Testament book. You can't find a prophecy in the Old Testament that says this. What's, okay, so what's going on? Is, is Matthew just kind of padding Jesus' resume? He's just making up stuff now? Uh, he hasn't been doing that before. He's not going to start now. There, there are a couple of clues that, that tell us this fulfillment is different than the other ones that have been going on before. Uh, first, you see, he talks about the prophets uh, in the plural there. This is uh, that, that very last verse, verse 23, so that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled. So this is not just what one specific prophet said. And, and then what follows is not a quotation. It's not... Uh, so that what was spoken of by a prophet might be fulfilled, quote, he would be called a Nazarene. Now it's just, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Not a, not a quotation, so maybe more of a, a theme or a general idea. Some people believe that the link is in the word, the, the word of the name, Nazareth. Uh, that first part, Nazar, it sounds a lot like, but not identical to the Hebrew word for branch which was one nickname for Messiah. Isaiah 11, 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So uh, this shoot or branch was meant to picture Messiah, 
as this new life coming out of the, what appeared to be the dead stump of David's line. I guess it would be fitting then for this, uh, this branch, this Messiah, to grow up in Branchville or Branchtown, whatever Nazareth would be. Now, but again, Matthew doesn't give us a direct quotation, so it's, it's not clear if that's it. It may simply be the, the overarching theme in the prophets that plays out later in the Gospels that Jesus came from humble origins, uh, just little old Nazareth, away from the center of political and religious authority and power, uh, so remote, in fact, that, that it was often despised. Another gospel tells us that one man who later became a follower of Jesus had this first reaction to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm like, no, everybody knows that. Um, and the attitude, that, that attitude would follow Jesus throughout his ministry. He couldn't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. But Matthew says that's actually one more point in his favor. The Messiah would come humbly the shoot from the stump starts small. You would miss him if you weren't looking for him. And that obscurity is kind of a strange way to, to end our Christmas series. As I said, it's a bit anticlimactic. But the thing is, it's not the end of the story. It's the end of the, the birth narratives, but it's not the end of the story. This is just letting us know very briefly where Jesus ended up uh, in between his auspicious birth and his public ministry some 30 years later. Jesus waits unseen as threats continue until he is revealed to all as king. I worded it that way very intentionally. Because you could say that we are again or still at this point in the story. Think, think again of the story arc of Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Jesus is born within the royal line of David as the supernatural son of God, born uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's worshipped by those who were looking for signs of a new king, preserved by the power of God from the evil powers against him. But then he just seems to disappear. He's off the grid. He's not on the radar anymore. Well, and that seems like how... People think of Jesus today in our culture. Well, he was sort of famous 2,000 years ago. And Christianity, you know, it's been important in Western civilization. It was, it's, it's, it was very nice and, and special to my grandparents, but, you know, it's not a big deal anymore. Not today. You need to know that more than just the Christmas story, this infant Jesus, because the Bible also claims that he is the resurrected and reigning Lord. He is the King of kings, and He is bringing our salvation. Though you can't see Him now, He will return. And folks, I don't have to tell you that the threats continue. The, the powers that be, the evil powers, seem to, seem to come one after the other, down through history. And, you know, we're all, we're all hoping for the next the next, the next person that's going to, the next leader that's going to turn things around, that's going to make things better. But should we be surprised when it feels like, oh, this guy? And now, and now them? <laughs> because what we're waiting for is the king who we don't see right now. 
He waits unseen as threats continue until he is revealed to all as king. And his perfect kingdom is for those who turn to him now, trust him now. He, he came to bring a new covenant. He, it was all, he was all about bringing people into a new relationship with God. And that's why when he was, when he was a child, the Savior had to be saved. And that's why when he was grown, he willingly sacrificed himself for our sake. That's when he got his crown on earth the first time. That's when the, the phrase that the wise men used, king, who, where, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That's where that phrase, king of the Jews, shows up on a sign over his head on the cross. He is God's son. He is the Savior. He is our king. And so even in this dark story, even in this dark world, we have something to celebrate We know who the king is, and we know he's just biding his time. One day, he's going to show up, and then we will see him in his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are the one who knows our hearts and can change our hearts through the covenant, the the new arrangement, the new relationship brought about through Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying, God, as as you know the hearts that are here today, the hearts that may be uh, not in this room but watching uh, online, maybe even not even watching this morning. They're going to find this video later this week. But in that moment, you are there and you are are at work in, in whoever is hearing what has come from your word this morning about Jesus. And I I want to pray especially for those who just might feel like they're, that they identify with those families in Bethlehem. Who feel like, how can God be up to anything good after what I've suffered? God, would you come near and by, by a power that only you have, a power I don't have to, to try to talk and explain, but a power that you have by your spirit to bring hope on the other side of grief. That you would bring hope to the inconsolable. Would you console them? And would you bring us all once again to Jesus, the son that ultimately you did not spare, but gave up for us all. Thank you for dealing with sin and evil at the cross, and we look forward to the day when you will deal finally and forever with sin and evil and suffering and death when Jesus returns. Send him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.